If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and have it ready to go. I usually tell you exactly where to turn when I say that. Um, I'm very comfortable saying go to this passage and then just kind of walking through that passage, but I feel compelled to do something a little different this morning, more of a systematic approach. So we'll be looking at some different scriptures, a little out of my comfort zone, but I pray it's a blessing and something that would help us to think well. So we're going to we're going to think deeply this morning, so if you're tired, uh, I think there's probably more coffee back there, um, but I just invite you to engage your minds. We're smart people, and I also believe in the clarity of God's Word, that God is not trying to hide truth from us. God wants us to understand what He's written. It's not a secret, and so as we read, uh, read with the confidence that God wants you to know these things. Josie, did you get up and get coffee because I told you to think? All right, I like it. <laughs> um so we're entering into the Christmas season. You know, think about this, when the angels appeared in the sky over Bethlehem to those shepherds, that wonderful picture of them sitting on the hillside, he appeared and, and announced the coming of Jesus as a baby. Um, it was an event that they said was to bring glory to God in the highest. And what's that next part? And on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. The Christmas season then is this this time of of light, the light of the glorious gift of the Son of God that has been given. Um, And and we mark this time of the year by by giving glory to God, but but also by goodwill towards men. It's a time of generosity, isn't it? Uh, It's a time of the year when we see the Salvation Army bell ringers out, ringing their bells. Uh, we, we, it's a time of year when we give gifts to friends, to family, to co-workers, to civil servants. It's a time of charity and kindness to those that are disenfranchised, to those that are poor in this world. Each year I get this catalog around Christmas time. I don't know if you get this from World Vision, uh, where you can give gifts. I could give a goat to someone. Now, no one here necessarily wants a goat. But there are those that, that that is a gift to them. And, and so World Vision has this, I invite you to do this. It's kind of a really neat opportunity to give practical things to help those that are in desperate need in poverty around the world. And that's what Christmas is, is about. It's a time to bless those in need. It reminds me of a Muppet Christmas Carol, because um, it's Christmas time, where the, the ghost of Christmas present, he sings this song, which I won't sing. He says, it's the season of the heart. A special time of caring or sharing. I'm not sure. I'll just have to watch it again and figure it out. Um, but, but this is, this is for all people, isn't it? I mean, this is, John and I were talking about th- this morning that, that no matter who you are, Christmas time is a time of generosity and charity and, and giving and, and kindness. And it's that way for almost all people. But what I want to ask this morning is to, I want to think about how as followers of Christ, as children of the one true God, this call to generosity, this call to um, to kindness, especially to the poor, especially to those that are in need. Why is that so important for us? Why is it that we who are called Christians should have a special concern, Scripture says, for the widows, for the orphans, for the strangers or the immigrants, and for the poor? And why should we do that not just in December, but January through November? Why is that something unique to followers of Jesus, to worshipers of the one true living God? Two weeks ago, if you were here, Matt was one of the guys that preached, and he shared this thought that if you, if you want to be like someone, you do what they do. And then specifically, he said, to follow Christ is to join him in all he does, including suffering. 
Um, so I was listening, Matt. To follow Christ is to join him in all he does, including suffering. Uh, we picked up that theme of suffering again last week uh, when Nate preached, and Nate talked, and he said uh, about living a life worthy of the gospel, he said these closing words. He said, no matter the conditions that we find ourselves in, accepting suffering as an opportunity to glorify God will show to the world that the gospel is true. People may begin to say that person says he believes the gospel, and his life even looks like he believes the gospel. So, Matt's point, we follow Christ by suffering because he suffered. And Nate's point, we model the gospel, we live a life worthy of the gospel, we authenticate the message of the gospel by suffering. So what I want to do is I want to take suffering out of those two equations and put in care for the poor, care for the needy. So in other words, I want to say this, I want to say that to follow Christ is to join him in all he does, including caring for the needy. To follow Christ is to join him in all he does, including caring for the needy. And then the second point, that our care for those in need is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. That when we care for those in crisis, people will look at us and say, that person says he believes the gospel, or maybe even that church preaches the gospel. And you know, I think they might actually believe it. They, they, they look like they believe it too because of their care for those in need. I think we're going to focus most this this morning on that to follow Christ is to join him in all he does, including his care for the poor. And think about that this is God's heart. That God's heart is, is it care, he cares for widows, orphans, for the needy, for the poor. That that is God's heart, and therefore it should be ours. And I think we all agree with that state, those statements off the bat, don't we? I mean, we, it just resonates within us. But I want us to see them in Scripture. I want us to... to, to find a deep core conviction that, that charity and kindness and sacrificial love is something that is in the character of God, that's in Scripture, that's in the Gospel, because it's only when we see that that we will continue with that hard work of helping those that are in need, because it's hard. It's hard to help those that, that are are poor, those that are in need, those that, that have specific needs. It's hard work. And it's something that's going to continue. There are, the, the Old Testament says the poor will always be among you. It will always happen. That Lord willing, people will, will come and they will, they, will, they will come out of that, but yet there will be more that always have need until Jesus returns. And we as a church are called to help. We as Christians are called to help in a sacrificial way. So I want us to have these deep convictions so that when it gets difficult, we believe that this is truly something we are supposed to do. I want us to wrestle with this. Um, because I don't want us to burn out in in helping those that are in need, and I don't want it to. I don't want us to do it for the wrong reason, and I don't want it to be something that's just sort of a, a one-time sort of thing that we do every once in a while. I want it to be a part of of who we are. Um, and I'm going to be the first to admit I'm still learning so much about this. I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading this book, and as part of the impetus for for why we're going to talk about this generous justice, how God's grace makes us just. I'm reading. Um, I, I'm, I'm praying, I'm asking others, having conversations. I probably had conversations with some of you all. Um, and I just want us to think together. I want, I want you to push back on what I say if you disagree. I want us to, to search the scriptures. I want to ask questions, but all of it in an effort to know God's heart. What is God's heart for the world? What is God's heart for those that are in need? What is God's desire for us, even as his children? And so I want to think about, um, this morning, I would think about godliness. 
What is godliness? What is, what is righteousness? What does it look like to, to image God in the world? To show forth who God is? What is Christ likeness? And why does Christ likeness include a special care for those in need? I want us to think about righteousness and righteous living. When we speak about godliness or being like Jesus or, or righteousness, I think we often automatically think about personal holiness. We think about the sins that I'm supposed to avoid or the the church things that I'm supposed to do or, or, or where I'm supposed to go. Or if we talk about discipleship, the picture that comes into our mind is, is usually probably of, of, of maybe sitting down and reading our Bible together. That's part of our discipleship. Or reading, reading by ourselves or with, or with someone else. Now, is personal holiness part of Christ-likeness? Yes, 100%. First Peter tells us, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. So why are we supposed to be holy? Because that's who God is. And if we are to be godly, then we should be holy. We should be separate. We should be pure. The Israelites were given laws to, to be pure, to be separate. And that carries over for us. Is discipleship rooted in an understanding of God's word, in a studying of God's word, one-to-one or in groups? Yes, I will never be stand up here and tell you, don't sit down and read your Bible with other people. That is, we need this, of course. But following Jesus, being like Christ, being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is more than just personal holiness. It's more than just reading your Bible. It's more than just coming to church. Matt talked about that old commercial. You remember that? I'd like to be like Mike, the Gatorade commercial. I remember that when I was a kid. I wanted to be Michael Jordan. You heard Nate tell last week about how I used to not play on a full 10-foot hoop. I'd lower it down as far as I could so that I could dunk because I wanted to be like Mike. Um and I couldn't be like Mike unless I put it at six feet. Um, and I still can't dunk, and I'm six feet tall. But um, I, I imagine that you really did that. You said, I want to be like Michael Jordan. And you just you practiced like Jordan, and you dressed like Jordan, and you ate like Jordan, and you slept like Jordan. You did everything like Jordan. You, you did everything that you could to be like Michael Jordan, except you never played a basketball game. I mean, you did everything else, but you never played a basketball game. Would you be like Jordan? A little bit. But you're missing such a big part of who he was that you really wouldn't be at all like him. And I really think that if we focus, if we say, I'm going to focus just on personal holiness, or I'm going to, I'm going to focus just on my own time in God's Word, I'm going to focus just on going to church, we miss such a huge chunk of who Jesus is that we're really not his disciples. Haven't we seen this in the book of Luke? I mean, Jesus' heart and care for those that are in need is all over the place. If we're missing that, it's like... Being like Michael Jordan, but never playing a basketball game. We're somewhat like him, but are we totally like him? I think we're missing a big part of it. James tells us what true religion is. James one twenty seven says, True religion in the sight of God is this. The second one is to keep ourselves unstained by the world. There's a purity of life, a holiness that we are to have. But what's the first one? It's to care for widows and orphans in their distress. It's both and. But here's what I think. You can tell me if you if you think differently, but I think that part of human nature is to reduce walking with God simply to personal holiness and private study and going to church. This is it's easier. But what is righteous and just living? What is righteousness? I think that's the issue. What is righteousness? Righteousness can't exist apart from interacting with others. God rejects a righteousness that neglects the neediest of people. I want to say that and then back it up. God rejects a righteousness that neglects 
the neediest of people. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah, if you open your Bible right to the middle, you'll hit Psalms probably. And if you go a little bit to the right, you'll hit the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah. He was warning of things that were coming, of judgment that was coming. And he opens his his prophecy with a bang in chapter 1. We're going to read a chunk of this. Um, but what the, the gist is that God rejects his people's obedience to the law. He rejects their fasting. He rejects their sacrifices. He rejects their worship because they were neglecting the poor and they were taking advantage of the needy. Listen to these words. Isaiah will start in chapter in verse 2. This is the vision of Isaiah. He says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He speaks about Israel as his children, his family, they have rebelled against him. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my, pe- my people do not understand. Even animals know their master, but my people don't even understand who I am. Verse 4, ah, that's a, that's a note of pain. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? In other words, when I punish you, why don't you turn? Why don't you change? Stop doing this. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. In other words, the land is suffering too. Your whole, your whole city, your whole nation is suffering because of your wickedness. And the daughter of Zion is left, verse, verse 8, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had left us, as a, had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed because of their wickedness. And he says, if God had not left a few survivors, we would be completely wiped out because of our wickedness. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's not talking to Sodom, he's talking to Israel, but he calls them Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. Had God commanded these sacrifices? Yeah. But he says, I I don't even want them anymore. Why? When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 15, he says, you spread out your hands in, in prayer, but they are filled with blood. So Israel is is being rejected by God because they're, they're coming, they're bringing worship, but their hearts are full of sin. They're coming, they think they're doing what God wants them to do, 
but they are filled with sin. This, this is us apart from the grace of God. If you've come here today and you think, I think I could do enough good things to make God happy with me. This should just come as, as a loving slap in the face that says, God doesn't want what you can bring because you can't bring anything. He doesn't want you to bring your, your, your worship if your heart hasn't been changed. If you haven't truly been re- repented and turned to Christ. He says here though, this is what you need to do. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, I want to come back to this, but I want to say this here. What's the solution? Wash yourself. Here's the reality. We can't wash ourselves. We can't do it on our own. But what is the beautiful truth of verse 18? It says, come now. This is God speaking. Come now. Let, let us reason together. Let, let's talk, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. When we come to God, He says, come. Come, I, I will wash your sins away. If you come in repentance, if you come in faith, I will wash them away. And when he does that, we are to turn and we are to walk in godliness. We are to walk in the way that he calls us to. And what does that include? Verse 16 says, cease to do evil. Beginning of verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, to the orphans, and plead the widow's cause. Help those that are in deep need. It's interesting, he calls them Sodom earlier on. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah when, when, when a lot was there and, and God came to Abraham. You remember we studied this a long time ago, but uh, God, come, or God comes to Abraham and says, I'm destroying the city of Sodom because their wickedness has risen up against me. And he ends up raining fire and brimstone. If you've ever heard that phrase, that's from Sodom and Gomorrah. On that city and destroys everyone there. Why? Now, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, the first thing that we usually think of is that they were sexually promiscuous. They were, they were sinful. They were filled with lust. And that was surely part of the reason that they were punished. But what's interesting, and we looked at this a while ago, is in Ezekiel 16, 49-50, listen to these words. This is what it says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This is why they were destroyed. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. That second part, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. I think that talk, that's talking about what we usually think about with Sodom. But what else were they punished for? Because they had money. They had food. They had more than they needed. And they didn't help the poor. They didn't help those that were in need. Israel was acting like Sodom here in Isaiah. And they were, they were filled with the blessings of God. And they withheld them from the poor and the needy. And so God judges them. Nobody wants to be called Sodom. Can you imagine what that would be like for the people of Israel? God's chosen people to be called a, a nation, a pagan nation that rebels against God? To be lumped in with that city that's the object of God's wrath? But, but could God call us? Could God call the American church Sodom? Gomorrah? 
I think maybe because of our debauchery, but even because we are abundant in blessings. We have a commitment to personal holiness. We, we have correct worship, but could we have a complete lack of care for the poor and for the needy? Could happen. Zechariah 7 is another example of this. If you turn a little bit more to the right, it's second to last book there of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 7. It's a very similar situation, except this is after the temple has is, is being rebuilt. So Isaiah speaks before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And he tells them what's coming. Zechariah speaks afterwards. And wonder, we wonder, did Israel learn their lesson? Did they figure it out? Chapter 7, it says in verse 1 of chapter 7 in the book of Zechariah, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So here's the question they want to know. Should we continue to fast in the fifth month? In the fifth month they fasted to commemorate when Nebuchadnezzar had come and destroyed the temple, which was 70 years prior. But now the temple is being rebuilt. And so they say, should we continue to fast? It's a pretty good question. If the temple's back, should we continue to be sad? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, so this is the Lord speaking, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, and in the seventh month, which is to commemorate the death of Gedaliah, which had occurred previously, for those seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? He says, did you do it for me? Were you fasting for me? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? He says, why are you fasting? Uh, is it for me? Or are you just trying to get something out of it? And then he tells them, here's what you need to do. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Isaiah speaks to this too. Let me just read this from Isaiah. He talks about the fast that they were coming and, and what God has to say about those fasts, these, these acts of worship. In Isaiah 58, he says, the question is asked, um, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? It says, behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? God saying, is this how I want you to fast? Do I want you to fast? Is this a day for a person to, be, to humble himself, to bow his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And then he tells them the kind of fast he wants. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not, this is the fast God wants, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God says, I don't want your religious ceremony. 
if your heart is not towards me, here's, here's what it looks like to serve me. It's to help those that are in need. He gives this, in Zephaniah, he gives this group of fourths. I've heard it called the quartet of need. The widow, the fatherless or the orphan, the sojourner, which would be the immigrant, someone without a home, and the poor. It says that these, this, is, this represents who God has a heart for. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. This is who God cares about. Um, in this book, Tim, Timothy Keller says, um, in pre-modern agrarian societies, that sounds smart, doesn't it? Um, farming communities, these four groups had no social power. They lived at a subsist- subsistence level and were only days from starvation if there was any famine, invasion, or even minor social unrest. Today, this quartet, this group of four, would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people. So the point isn't just these four. It's, it's those that are in need, those that, that are on the edge of starvation, those that, are, that are, are in deep poverty, and there's no way out. And God says, I want you to show compassion to them. This is what true and undefiled religion looks like. It's helping those that are in deep need. Why? Because that's who God is. That's what God does. Brothers and sisters, God will reject our worship. He will reject our worship if our hearts are stingy towards the needy and the poor. That's what we learn from Israel. You can do everything right. But if you have no love for those that are in need, God says, I, I don't want your fasting. I don't want your worship. I don't even want you, you coming to church if you don't care for those that are in deep need. And because the issue here is not simply that we're uncharitable or unkind, but in doing those things and neglecting the poor, we are actually being unjust and unrighteous. To neglect the poor is not the absence of kindness. It is the absence of kindness, but it's also the presence of injustice and unrighteousness. This is how Ezekiel describes the righteous men and women in Ezekiel 18, 5-9. He says, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, this is the person that's just and righteous. So get in your mind, who is someone that I think is righteous and just? This is what God's word says, someone who is righteous is. If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. That doesn't mean you're never allowed to eat on a mountain uh, to be righteous. It means you're not worshiping false gods. Does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity. There's purity here. There's, there's a purity of life. Then he says, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. Isn't it interesting? God interweaves these things. Who is righteous? Yeah, there's a holiness of life. There's a lack of worshiping idols. But there, there's there's kindness to the poor, there's giving bread to the hungry, and it's it's called justice. It's called injustice to not do it. So it's not simply generosity, but the Old Testament and Ezekiel here says that to seek the welfare of the poor is in fact to seek justice in the earth. That there is something that God says the poor deserve to have this. It is just, it is right, it is their due. Because I have given all things to you, and you need to give to them. Now, I'm still processing that. Because I, I've gone through life saying, giving to the poor is, is always generosity. It's always charity. It's always kindness. But the Old Testament seems to say 
that to give to the poor is in fact justice. It is what they have, they, they deserve. Now, justice to me is a difficult topic. When I think about justice, let me tell you my thought process. When I think justice, I think, what do I deserve? I deserve hell. That's the only thing I've earned with my life. That's the only thing I deserve to have because I have sinned and rebelled against God and God righteously judges me. And that judgment is coming. Paul never shied away from that. In, in Acts um, chapter 17, listen to these words as he speaks uh, in Athens. He says in Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. It's fixed. There is a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Be sure of this. There is a day fixed when God will come and he will judge the world in righteousness. And all those who have not repented and turned from sin and put faith in Christ will be judged, and rightly so, and that is just and righteous for God to do it. He is not, uh, he is, he's not doing anything wrong in doing that, but because he is our creator and we have rebelled against him, he is right to bring justice and judgment upon us. That's what I think about when I think about justice. And then I think about justification and what God has done for me on my behalf. That 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 God, um, that, listen to these words from Galatians that explain justification so well. Galatians two fifteen to sixteen. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around all over the place. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The Jews were putting their confidence in who they were. Yet we know that a person is not justified, is not made right before God by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. No one will be justified, no one will be made right before God by works of the law. So all these things we're talking about, if you do them all, you're not going to be made right before God. God is just in His judgment of us, but He has made a way. He has come. He's come and He has done what we could not do. He has been perfectly righteous. He did everything. That description in Ezekiel 18 of what a righteous person is, that was Jesus to a T. Everything there. We have failed that in so many ways, but He was the righteous one. And therefore He lived the righteous life we could not. And He died, not for His own sin, but for my sin. My sin of lack of personal holiness. My sin of false worship. My sin of neglecting the poor and the needy. My sin of stinginess. My sin of not loving others. He died for it all took the penalty upon himself. And now I can be justified. I can be made righteous before him. He gives me his righteousness. But there's another aspect of God's justice that says it is right to help those that are in need. If we are to be godly, godlike, if we want to reflect God, you know what we do? We help the poor because that is God's heart. That, that is what he does. He helps those that are in need always. Isn't it interesting, some of the things that we read around Christmas. Christmas is about justice. Christmas is about Jesus coming to bring justice. And not just justice in the in the sense of taking God's wrath for us, but also justice for those that are in need. Listen to this. For us, To us a child is born. We all know this, right? Isaiah chapter 9. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Makes you want to sing the hallelujah chorus, right? Wonderful. Um, wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus has come to bring justice, and one day he will bring it fully and finally. But even in Isaiah chapter 11, another familiar passage says, There shall come forth, we read this, a root from the stump of Jesse, and then in verse 4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know, justice isn't evenly distributed in the world. <laughs> we think that everyone receives what they what they deserve, but there are people that are oppressed in this world. There are people that that for for no lack of their own fault they they start behind in life. And justice is that it's very hard for them to receive maybe the benefits that many of us have had. And it's our job as Christians to to bring the justice and the righteousness that God has called us to do to reflect the heart of God for the poor. If I can read something else here from, from Timothy Keller. This is this was my issue. He says, many readers, this hit me, many readers may be asking, many listeners right now may be asking at this point why we are calling private giving to the poor justice. Some Christians believe that justice is strictly the punishment of wrongdoing, period. That's me. This does not mean that they think that believers should be indifferent to the plight of the poor, but they would insist that helping the needy through generous giving should be called mercy, compassion, or charity, not justice. In English, however, the word charity conveys a good, a good but optional activity. Charity conveys a good but optional activity. Charity cannot be a requirement, for then it would not be charity. But this view does not fit with the strength or balance of the biblical teaching. But rather, Scripture talks about justice for the poor and righteousness for the poor. That's the one I want you to think about and push back on. Help me think through this. But I believe that this is what Scripture seems to say in that Ezekiel 18 passage in, in Isaiah 58. And then he says this, If you are trying to live a life in accordance with the Bible, the concept and call to justice are inescapable inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. I love that. That's what it does. It shows the character of God. He loves those that are in need. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life, to regular and radical, generous giving of your time and resources, to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. I'm just blown away by this thought that part of my righteousness and reflecting the righteousness and the justice of God is found in doing good to those that are in deep need. It's not just charity. It's not optional. It's part of who we are supposed to be as Christians, as we reflect Christ's likeness, as we reflect the love of God. And that's the deep core conviction that I want. Because I don't want it to just be optional, but I want it to be, this is who God is. And if I want to be Christ-like and God-like as a child of God, if I want to look like my Father, then that's what I do. It just, it just flows. Job talks about justice and righteousness. He says, I put them on like a garment. It's not something that you just put on every December. It's something that we wear every day. It's who we are. And it flows from the wonderful truth of the gospel, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet he became poor 
so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that wonderful? That Jesus, who has all things, became poor. Born into a poor family. Born without even a, a, a true roof over his head. Born to, to those on the lower end of the social system. And he lived in obscurity. He was poor. He was, became poor. Why? So that we could become rich. Jesus identifies with those that are in need. Why? So that we see that we are in need. Because in reality, what's going to show us, what, what's going to motivate us to go and to help all those that are in need is to say, you know what? That's me. Without Jesus, I am poor. And I'm not just poor, I'm dead. I'm dead in my sins. I have no hope apart from Christ. And if Jesus has saved me, wow, I'll show love and justice to anyone. I'll tell you what the most loving thing that we can do is, we've seen with Jesus' miracles, that all the miracles he does, all the good that he does to help the, the, the poor and the needy and the blind and the lepers and those that have lost loved ones, that it's all meant to point to the to the greater truth, isn't it? That he's come to bring forgiveness of sins, that he's come to make all things right, that he's come to restore us to a right relationship with God. And so the most loving thing that we can do, in fact, is to tell forth the good news that Jesus has come to bring true justice, to make us right with God and justify us with him.